and welcome to Surf's Up, a Beach Boys podcast safari. My name is Mark Dillon, author of 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and I am here today with my partner, Phil Migliorati. Hello, Phil. Mark, good to hear your voice and excited about our conversation that's about to take place. Yeah, so the Beach Boys have come out with yet another of these great copyright extension archival uh, box sets, and this is Sail on Sailor 1972, which celebrates two albums from that time, Carl and the Passion, So Tough, and Holland, and it also includes a bunch of unreleased tracks and a concert that the group performed uh, Thanksgiving Day at Carnegie Hall in 1972, and to help us unpack this big release, we have one of the folks directly involved in its creation, that's Howie Edelson. Howie is head writer, producer for United Stations Radio Networks, co-founded by Dick Clark and writer-producer of the weekly nationally syndicated rock radio show, The Classics. He has conducted in-depth interviews with rock legends and serves as a consultant to Brother Records, and he also wrote the liner notes for this new release and uh, worked on its overall construction. Welcome back, Howie. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for coming back. Uh, you know, you talked to us before a couple of times uh, for the other big box set releases, Feel Flows and Sounds of Summer. So tell us how uh, this one uh, compares with those. Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's the next era but it's a completely different band. Whereas before, you know, before with Feel Flows, there were the 68 copyright drops. And before that, there was Sunshine Tomorrow. And it was essentially the same band. And as many Beach Boy fans know, with Carl and the Passions, Bruce Johnston is gone Two of the members of the Flame, Blondie Chaplin, Ricky Fatar, are in the band, full, quote unquote, full members. As far as um, being visible in the promo material, a part of the show, and writing songs for the albums, so they're given, um, they're given a piece of the real estate on the on the new Beach Boys product. Um, What's different about it is they're coming off of a, a success. They're coming at you. Jack Riley had taken over as their manager. They had become this new entity, street clothes, beards. Um, it's, it's, it's a hip group. They're touring colleges. They're touring bigger uh, arenas and auditoriums. They're, they're a hot touring band and they're um they're a force to be reckoned with on the college circuit so young people are seeing and hearing them and with surfs up it's the first time they're getting some substantial uh airplay so this is a a known entity and a new entity um as far as carl and the passions the, the, the thing that's interesting about Carl and the Passions is that it comes six months after Surf's Up. And I know even in those days, the turnover for albums was much quicker. Uh, a U2 album, it could be eight years, and you don't even think about it being, that's essentially a decade. Um, you know, like, like, like an album's 
span from conception to writing to recording to the end of the touring cycle could easily be over a decade. With, with them, it's six months. And what was always the case with them would be recording, 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 much like the Stones, where Keith Richards once had a great quote. He was like an album ended when you scooped the 12 songs and put them out. But it, it there was never a difference in the sessions, you know, whether it was Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile. It was just like, which one, which one is right? Let's grab it. And in a way, the Beach Boys were like that. It was a lot of recording. Don't forget, it was also, like I say, it was seven bands in one. It was this unity. You know, you had Carl, who's working with, with the Flames guys. But then you also have Carl, who's working with Mike and Al. But he's also part of Brian's thing with Riley. And he's also there to support Dennis however he can. So all of these things are orbiting... The, the brand, all these moons are all around the you know, the home base. And Carl and the Passions, which if any band today put out Carl and the Passions, it would be top of the pops. I mean, people would be going nuts over this music, this band. I've said it before. People look like this now. Like, you know, you look in the, the you know, the, the, the group shot of Carl and the Passions. That's what bands look like. That's what bands sound like. It took 50 years for it to become current. It was a disappointment. And, I, you know, I was talking with the um, with the Grammy, uh, Grammy.com, and I explained the way I, I explained it was, it was, it was like a poo-poo platter where, you know, you could get a poo-poo platter at a Chinese restaurant and it technically is a meal because if you eat it all, you're, you're full. And someone say, did you eat? And it's like, yeah, I ate. Did you have a meal? But I didn't have a meal. It, it was almost like hors d'oeuvres for a bigger thing. It was a taster for the Beach Boys 72 yeah, they, they, they had and, to get an album out, and so they were picking things up all over the place. Like, you know, those Dennis songs were for his uh, Poops Hubba Hubba solo album, but I guess they needed to fill out these uh, these eight songs. Yeah, and it was a short album, too. They could have put a, another one in there. Um, the thing that's crazy is that how do you, and this is something at the Grammy Museum when I was with Mike, and I've talked to him about, because Mike has always been down on how the Capitol deal ended with, you know, the number one surfing group and all that. But my whole um, take on it is um, Warner Brothers wasn't much better for them. You know, I read... Um, Peter Ames Carlin's book, which was great. I don't know if you guys uh, read it. His his book all on mm -hmm. on Warner Brothers, and you know 
everybody was getting signed and their ass kissed. And here's a hundred thousand dollars and billboards. And we'll believe in this band for beach boys. Every album gets rejected. The beach boys, you know, sunflowers rejected surfs up. There's all kinds of changes going on. Uh, it, it, Holland gets rejected, sent back. We need a single all of a sudden, you know, this label where it's just too cool for school, you know, accidental hit singles by uh, the Doobie Brothers. Uh, it, 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 all of a sudden, Beach Boys need to start making singles. OK, well, how about FM radio? You look at Carl and the Passions. How is You Need a Mess of Help to Stand Alone? Not everywhere. How is that not played uh, in, in, in rotation? along with Marcella and all this is that our whole lives. It's insane that those three songs, at least Marcella and all this is that didn't, we weren't a part of our vernacular. It, it, it's something went wrong there. I personally think there was someone there who just didn't dig on the beach boys and something, some plug was pulled that, you know, Carl and the Passions gets to whatever in the 50s, Surf's Up, which is their hit. It's like top 30. Something's going wrong there, especially when this band is, you know, as hot as you can be on the road and selling out and crisscrossing the country with ease. There are there are audience that, audiences that want to see this act everywhere and something went wrong and it's got to be due to someone i would love to know who but you know you go back and you start asking around and everybody was fucked up everybody the label was fucked up everybody around the band everybody it was a whole different time where accountability that as far as checks and balances trying to check on checks and balances from 71 72 73 it's a it's a really weird space but you know one thing that this box set makes pretty clear is it, it was tough for the beach boys sometimes to win over the new audience like we hear that in the carnegie hall uh, segment the concert that they did like first of all jack riley their manager comes on stage and sort of issues like a warning to people that, you know, we the, the, the song order has been very carefully worked out by the group. So save your requests for the end. And and I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Like Mike is is very combative towards this audience at times because they're shouting out like, you know, whatever old hit they want to hear. And he, he actually at one point tells somebody to shut the F up. You know, he gets really angry. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that this is kept on, on the set. But I mean, it just shows that, you know, it, it was it was a tough sell for them to get this new material over to, uh, you know, a portion of the audience that that was there for nostalgia and wanted to hear the the, the great old songs of their youth. Yeah, yeah and I think that I think that comes down to the fact that they're the first band to last a decade. You know, like the Stones, the Stones don't reach the decade mark in america till 74 you, you know what i'm saying and by that time you know by that decade they're barely playing any 60s songs i mean in 69 they're they're barely playing any i think they play maybe three or four 
total 1960s or or pre-69 songs. I think there's maybe two. Um, but there was something about the Beach Boys, and especially because a lot of these people that are going to these shows, I think, you know, maybe didn't even get Pet Sounds, but know the Pet Sounds hits. They're not, they weren't Smiley Smile, Wild Honey, Friends, 20, you, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, all of a sudden, they're back. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, especially like in a New York City gig, I'm sure a lot of those people weren't heading to Westchester to catch the gig in 67 or it, or the smaller venues. I think it was a lot of word of mouth. Hey, it's a it's a hot band, but all those songs. And I think that it's it, it, it was this conundrum that we're a huge part of your adolescence and we're coming back with new material and I don't know how else you would, you know, look at McCartney. McCartney came back in 72 and he didn't have to give provisos at the beginning of the show. He just played it. I think maybe the band was a little too self-conscious about, um, Hey, we're new. This is something else. Maybe who knows? I mean, it's such a weird thing that they're, you know, they're a decade-old band by uh, Carnegie. It's a weird thing. And it's a weird thing to be promoting yourselves when your catalog is so tied up to everybody's imagination and experience. You know, it's, it's a shared fingerprint. So it's a weird trip. It's a weird thing to have to... I, I mean, luckily, they were able to, you know... I mean, there are worse things than people calling out your greatest hits at Carnegie Hall. Um, but it, it must have been weird. Well, it was. Uh, living, uh, living it out in real time, it's interesting to hear you both talk about this and to have such keen insight into the, the dilemma or angst or whatever it would be for those of us who were, at that point, diehard Beach Boy fans. We wanted to hear music, new music, but also I think there was this expectation that you're coming to a Beach Boy concert to hear what Mike later called, you know, the, the car songs. And uh, and so I back in the day, I was thinking it may not have worked any better, but I was thinking, you know, you need to blast the place out with a, a long set of hits and maybe then come back with or intersperse with. Uh, I think at the Carnegie Hall, it, it felt like, yeah, we might get to a car song, but you, you got to listen to our new stuff. And maybe some of those people hadn't even heard of anything since Pet Sounds. And to them, Pet Sounds meant just, wouldn't it be nice? And God only knows, not, you know, the other kinds of a palette, a color palette or sound palette that, that came out of Pet Sounds. So it it was a conflicted audience. And uh, we did get some of that in the in the conversation at uh, live at Carnegie Hall well I mean Phil when you were going to these shows because you were a constant fan were you were you sensing in the crowd um frustration 
I mean, it sounds like a lot of these people that are shouting out songs uh, maybe aren't uber fans, but kind of, you know, yaboos, you know, just <laughs> being idiots. You know, like, what were you, what was the vibe when you were going there in 71, 72, 73, where, you know, you know everything that, that there, there's no song they're going to play that you don't know and you dig everything they're going to play. What, what surrounding you, what was the vibe of the people? What were you thinking they were there for? Well, it might depend. Uh, you're helping me think this through, Howie. It might depend on where you sit. Uh, the late 73 concert uh, my wife, Carol, and I went to, uh, I think it was Orchestra Hall Chicago. I should have looked it up to know for sure. But we could only afford the, uh, you know, barely in the door seats. So we had to climb. Which were probably like $2 and 50 cents. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Um, yeah. Maybe that. And, but we had to climb, you know, every set of stairs in the whole building. And when you walk out to sit, the ceiling of the whole uh, theater is, you know, six inches away from your head. I'm exaggerating, but you know, we're, we're up in the nosebleed section and all of the, uh, Smoke, shall I say, has arisen to the top. My wife's pregnant and breathing in all this stuff, but that's another story. But so there were some who were just there to uh, chill out, can I say, uh, probably stoned before they walked in. And maybe those are the ones who were queuing into some of this new, what I call this FM period of the Beach Boys life, where they're really trying to make that shift from top 40 singles to, you know, AOR album-oriented rock and different styles and stuff. So uh, I don't remember at that show having the kind of stuff that Mike uh, experienced at Carnegie Hall. It may, it may simply have been so certain venues, maybe this is weird, but certain venues you feel, even though there's a couple thousand people in the place, that uh, you really can speak out to the, to the guy on stage, whereas in other venues, it, it, it doesn't, you know, you're just part of a bigger crowd. I, uh, I think both kind of groups were there and uh, at the one we were at, I don't remember any kind of uh, antagonism towards uh, the new stuff. Maybe New York's just a tougher crowd. Well, that's, that, that could what do you be. say and, about and, that. And, and, you know, Carnegie, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a show at Carnegie. No. It's, it's a really unnatural place to see a concert. It's, it works. You know, I've seen a bunch of, um, McCartney orchestral things there, and it wor works perfectly. I've seen other things, it, it, you know, but a rock band, it really feels like, I mean, I saw Smile there twice, and that kind of worked, but I've also seen concerts there, and it's it feels like a ridiculous place. It feels like you're playing the White House. Hmm. And from what I remember... I don't know if I'm just imagining this. Um, the lights kind of always stay on. So I, I just remember at maybe in, in certain portions they do near the the uh, in the upper echelon, upper uh, upper portions of, of the hole. But I just remember most of the times being at, at Carnegie Hall, never being able to lose myself in the show. That's interesting you say that. I, say that again? Because, uh, that's interesting you say that. I haven't been to Carnegie, so I may be totally wrong here. But as I'm listening to the Carnegie section, the you know, live, 
like uh, songs on SOS. Um, I'm thinking this, the, 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 I don't hear the, the, uh, the singing along. I don't hear uh, the clapping. Now, maybe that's just the way it's mixed. But if you're in a venue that doesn't seem horribly large and the lights are on, as you say, it might be, I could see someone thinking, you know what? He's I'm 12 rows back. Mike can hear me. Uh, it may just engender that kind of uh, repertoire. Can hear me and see me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just feels like with Carnegie, as opposed to, you know, the next night at Passaic, um, which is arguably the better show, less historic. A lot of in concert comes from Passaic, um, which is more of a venue, is more of a theater venue, you know, it it just feels like maybe the crowd is a little too staid. Yes, you know, hands in their lap kind of crowd. Uh, yeah, a little respectful, and it's also like we're not on home turf. I mean, it's the coolest thing in the world having them play there in seventy one and seventy a couple of times in 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 seventy two. But it's also like, ooh, like, are we going to get busted? Like, we're like, we can't let loose in a yeah. way. Um, and it's, you know, it took years for, for bands to find a proper um, way to play Carnegie because it's such a, it's such a venue that, you know, took years until the miking and the, and the, and, and just the speaker situation turns into a viable, you know, venue place for rock. Um, it's almost a gimmick, but it's, you know, it's gorgeous. It's, I mean, I just, I just remember thinking when I saw Brian the first night at Carnegie, I just, what the, and it's so weird that th this was the thing that, um, that, that got to me was, all of Murray's sons ended up playing Carnegie Hall. Like all of Murray's hangups and mm. frustrations and you know all of all of his ranting and raving and, and and unhappiness about his lot in life as a musician, as a songwriter. All three of his sons ended up at Carnegie Hall singing their own songs. And it just made me think like, wow, this guy was a vessel and what that must have felt like, you know, like Jim McCartney, another one wrote songs, you know, for, you know, most of his youth and nobody ever heard them. And his son becomes Paul McCartney, you know. Yeah. It, it's um. It made me think, you know, Carnegie Hall. That's what I think. It's like, wow, all three of these boys ended up singing their own songs at Carnegie Hall, and you know, they would be checking Murray for his ticket if he ever showed up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I bet Murray was pretty conflicted about his son's success. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Howie, so is this all from one show from, from, from one Thanksgiving performance or, or is there a combination of the two shows they did at Carnegie and maybe some other stuff? Cause the message boards are talking about this. Yeah, it's, um, their fixes and sweetens just to get it, um, um, in, in a serviceable, perfect way. 
uh, as, as a forever live document, which is which would have been done at the time, which certainly uh, in concert was done. Uh, this is more fly-ins than um, Sweet. redos. Yeah. You know, they, they, there was that joke that the every live album, the real live album, is recorded the next day at soundcheck. <laughs> Hold on, I'm getting a, a horn coming. Um, I, you know, I, uh, I, I love Carnegie, and it's a really listenable show. And I, I actually prefer the other live tracks on Ceylon Sailor. Um, just because they're a bit more authentic, I'm of the, I'm a great fan of, uh, of a, uh, uh, producer engineer, John, uh, Alshuler, um, who does stuff for nugs, does all the Springsteen archival releases, does a lot of Bob Weir, does fish, does dead and company. Um, I, I'm a big fan of taking what's there and making it work. I'm, but I'm also younger where I'm not, you know, in the business, I'm looking at archival things as being archival and being okay with being archival. The way that I look at, at shows and live things is, you know, if a mic goes dead, that's kind of fascinating because you get to hear something that you heard on the night. There are some people that are thinking I'm, I'm spending a lot of money on a box set and I want to get a perfect performance. Um, I'm also a historian, so I have a different look at, uh, at things. I don't, I don't look at, at stuff as product. I do because I'm making product. Um, but I think we've gone through the looking glass where we can allow the reality and the humanness of um, concerts. And, and like I said, John Alshuler, just this, this, taking the Springsteen stuff where you get you even shows that are from the same run. It's a completely different mix. It's a completely different feel. And you just you just ride the show. I love engineers that ride the show that are able to be like, okay, well, tonight the piano, you know, Roy Bitten, he's taking the lead on this thing, as opposed to two nights later where it's not. It's the Hammond where that's driving, where you're feeling it and riding it. That's what I like. Some people like a perfect mix. Um, you're not going to get everybody happy. Um, but I always vote on, um, chicks without makeup. <laughs> we should give proper credit here. Uh, so, you know, producing this box says, well, we've got Alan Boyd, uh, who's in charge of the brother records archive and has been for many years and Mark Lynette, uh, who engineered and co-produced the set. And of course, how we are, you're right in there working with them. And boy, but you also have to remember Boyd, um, you know, when you say, you know, doing, you know, working the archive, Boyd does everything, like everything that goes on. Like I'm part of decision making and plotting and 
how are we going to do it and what should we do like all these different pieces and Boyd you know beyond that after those decisions get made and oh this is the avenue we're going to take on this and in three months this will blah blah you got to understand about Boyd all of that stuff then gets dumped onto Boyd's desk Boyd talk to this documentarian Boyd reach out to the you know, there, there's going to be a Morrison Hotel um, photo gallery. It, 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 like, it, it doesn't stop for Boyd. Whereas, you know, I can move on and, and have a career and a life and everything. And Boyd, it's just like, there's no Saturdays. There's no, it's, it, it's, you know, when I see that, when they're like, you know, archivists, and it's like, you think that it's just like, he's like a, a living Dewey Decimal system. It's not like that. It's like, okay, we're going to do it, Boyd. And he's the one that has to connect, you know, so many dots. So the ultimate shout out has to go to this guy for keeping this thing alive. I mean, we're, we're coming up on 25 years since... Um, uh, Endless Harmony and Endless Harmony really is the new uh, you know standard bearer as far as like when the quote unquote new era of them came about and he's just been um, uh, has just never stopped you know um, Endless so Harmony, wanna... for those who don't know, is is a documentary that uh, Alan Boyd directed and, and arguably the best documentary available on the band. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, was, you know, was responsible for bringing it into the now. You know, another huge shout out has to go to uh, Darian and David Leaf for helping Brian realize Smile smile happening um david leaf being there you know enabling him to be that artist darian for putting the thing together like these are heroes there are heroes in this story there are angels in this story everybody is is doing um doing what they can to i mean and the band too i gotta tell you you know People were 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 like, you know, what band member was was uptight about talking? All these guys are so thrilled to be talking in depth about this stuff. Um, not because you know necessarily it's their favorite music, um, but a you know ninety nine point nine percent of people are not asking them about it. And they're able to relive, you know, some of the hotter games in their season. You know what I'm saying? Like Al Jardine being able to sit back and remember writing um, California Saga. And, and you know, just, you know, that story about, you know, watching the shadow of the mountain and, and the sunset on the mountain. Like that's, he doesn't think about that stuff unless he's asked. You know, it's like even now they're 
their lives are so busy, just like going on the road. Like we, if we had to do what Mike does in a day, we'd be exhausted. We'd be in bed for a week. <laughs> and it's like these guys still have like, imagine going, waking up in the morning. And it's like, you're going to meet 19 people today and have small conversations with them. And maybe you'll never meet them again, but every day it's like that when you're on the road. And so going back and talking about this, this stuff that you did that um, lasted is, um, is, 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 I think they all love it. Brian too, you know, Brian was really, um, really open about, you know, and he's so sweet. He's like, I'm going to do my best. Howie, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to, and I'm like, cool, great, whatever, you know, whatever you can do. But I'm really trying, I've been really thinking about, you know, and, and, and how do you not fall in love with that guy every time he gets Howie. on the phone and says, Howie, I've been thinking, I'm really going to try to, it's like, oh my God. Howie, I think part of it is, what, what do I know? I'm just, you know, looking from afar, but when you start talking about this, I think about the times when uh, I forget the name of the song, sailplane song. What did it turn out to be? I forget Luke the exact Luke. title. Loop de Loop. Yeah, Loop de Loop. What I read, what do I know? Who was, if they were saying it, uh, accurate information, but it looked like there was uh, people, you know, maybe Alan Jardine or somebody saying, uh, no, 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 it's not perfect. Or, you know, it, it took like, you know, 10 years for that song to even come out, maybe as a bootleg. I don't. I think there's I think they're surprised that we truly want to hear absolutely everything and that we love it, even if they heard it and said, no, that wasn't perfect. Um, it's perfect to us because we get to it's like we get to be into a session that we never could have been at or we hear a version that, uh, you know, a lot of groups have several versions before they release it. We want to hear every I want to hear the demos. Sure. Um, and and I got to say about about um, Sailplane song, um, that second version where Lynette started to add the echo, you know, that other version, there's the one that's on Endless Harmony. Yeah. But then there's that other one mm -hmm. and he starts adding the echo. And I've always said to him, I was like, you made that thing a record. It went from being a demo Mm -hmm. And something that like guys like us would listen to, but just by slowly turning that reverb and making it so that you're falling, like one of these prop planes falling as he's going, Wah! and it turns into this dark, you know, <laughs> Nilsen-esque thing. I always say to him, I was like, you made that a record the same way with, um, with Boyd, uh, one of Boyd's greatest hits was on MIC, uh, um, California, uh, California feeling, which was um, personally never a favorite of mine as a song or a record. Um, but we all had that booted version. Yeah. Um, and he took it. And he chopped it up and rearranged the drums and, and changed the whole heartbeat of the thing and made it something that's part of my life where it was just like, eh, you know, yeah. 74 Brian tune that, you know, got dug up and whatever. And Boyd made it a record. So, you know, some of this stuff, 
you know, exists as demos for a reason, but there's sometimes you can tweak it if you do it with the right amount of good intention and uh, clean ears and, you know, angels on your shoulder, you can make this stuff <laughs> better art, if I may say so myself. You, you, bring, so up, uh, you bring up Al Jardine, uh, Phil, and I think um, th this box set's an important one in terms of shedding a light on his contribution at that time. I mean, I guess I never thought that he was kind of a driving force behind a track like He Come Down. And, and you talk about how, you know, with Loop de Loop, he was never happy with it. So he re-recorded it 30 years later, you know, he worked on it for the uh, Endless Harmony package. And so it's interesting that on this set, he actually did some of the mixing himself, some remixing. He remixed He Come Down. Uh, he did some work on the California saga, you know, and I'm usually not one for like messing with what was done originally. However, I agree with them on, on the California saga because I remember, you know, first listening to, to the Holland album and listening to that California saga. I'm like, man, this poetry stuff's just going on and on. You know, can we get to the song? And that's exactly what he did. He 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 cut down some of the uh, Robertson Jeffries poetry that that is recited in the song to to shorten the gaps between uh, between the the, the the proper song. So it's just interesting that he he was so driven to uh, to make these edits uh, and and remixes himself. I I love that Al's involved. I love it. And what I say to the guys all the time is, let's remember, this is theirs. This is their album. This is their box set. Um, I think there's a tendency sometimes for people to forget that, you know, it's it's not theirs or, or think that, that that it's not theirs, that it's a new work. Nothing is new. Um, this is theirs. And like I always say, you know, it's like I serve at the uh, what, what, what's that saying? I, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, like whatever they want. If they want to erase a bass part and it's and it's agreed to and whatever, it's theirs. So, Howie, so, yeah. who is they? What I mean by that is it's the Beach Boys, but how does that process work? Are they only responsive? Like, okay, we've done it. You can listen to the first uh, draft of all the track lists or the first draft of the song and give us you your get everything. Every piece, they, art, every piece of do, artwork, every mix everything goes to them so if a everything. song is not on it it's probably one of them or all of them don't want it because there's other songs that aren't on from that time that aren't on this uh, this box sure set. sure but maybe they weren't given them you, you um, know what i mean like it's like this is what we're presenting like they're not okay, going to be like wait. They're wait. not going through the archives. They're just responding to what is put together yeah, for them. They're not to... saying wait. That, that Dennis, that incredible just for you, Dennis song that was on the copyright drop for seventy one isn't on this. What gives? They're not yeah. doing that. Okay. Um, but um, and the they is, but it's it's not. Bruce isn't part of brother, is he? The, the no brother. Brother is Brian, Mike. Al and Jonah and Justin are Carl, and that's brother, his sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dennis has sold his or to Carl or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It was sold to it was sold back short I think in, in eighty four or eighty five it was completely sold off. Yeah. That that's too bad that Dennis doesn't have somebody sitting at the table specifically for him. Uh you know, Melinda is. Melinda has really um with with me at least, um she's really been um on behalf of Brian, uh very attentive to how Dennis is um, to make sure that Dennis is there, you know, which uh, has always impressed me. And they're all fans of Dennis. You know what I'm saying? Like they all, um, they all enjoy hearing a lot, a lot of this Dennis stuff, you know, and talking to them, they don't remember, you know, like, you know, like peaches, Stuff like that, you know, like they don't even remember here. Some of this they didn't even hear. So, I mean, Boyd tells, I mean, when you talk to Boyd, you got to ask him. I'll, I'll give it to you because ju- just to get it out there. Um, he played Brian for the first time ever when they were doing Hawthorne, um, A Time to Live in Dreams. And he played it for Brian. Brian was like, I'd never heard this before. And he used to say, oh, listen. And Brian was really, really moved. And like a really spiritual situation. And first of all, you get that way listening to music with Boyd. Because Boyd is, you know, this he's one of the angels, you know? <laughs> so... Um, and I know Brian feels very comfortable and very safe with Boyd. Yeah, that's huge. Um, he has a lot of love, a lot of respect, and a lot of trust. So we mentioned Dennis. I mean, so he again is is a big part of uh, of, of this release. You know, and, and I said a second ago that I, I'm not a fan necessarily always with messing with the past, but yet another good example of that, a worthwhile thing, is how the strings have been stripped out of uh, make it good. And cuddle up, and I mean, yeah. maybe I'll maybe I'll get some blowback from from fans for saying this, but to me, make it good never quite made it because it's overwhelming. Like the string arrangement, I know he was like you know trying to do as Mike calls his classical thing, but I just find that it, it seems almost absurd because because the the, the the it's such a crescendo of of strings that comes on and cuddle up is a great song no matter what but i mean i think it suffers as well from being a little bit kind of oral overlord like uh sorry oral overkill like there's so much going on with with, with strings and voices and stuff like that it's interesting and, hear- and very histrionic yeah and it's really interesting very, very to- histrionic yeah, it's, it's great to hear it sort of scale back like as close as possible to Dennis and the piano because sometimes that's all you need to, to create magic. Well, I from the get-go, we weren't going to... I mean, from, you know, even before uh, Feel Flows, we had always talked about the one album that needs remixing is Carl and the Passions because then there are some people... You know, that are like, you know, you, you can't change it. it. It was dull. It was a dull album. It was, a you know, it was the first one where Moffat was in. Moffat, God bless him, he was no Desper. So you're going from the oral heights 
of sunflower and surfs up and all all that that entails all the marrow between those two bones and you're going to what sounds like just another rock album you know a crosby nash album sounds like a crosby nash album kind of flat um Maybe not muddy was or, my word back yeah, then. It murky. felt muddy. <laughs> muddy, muddy. Yeah, it wasn't. And um, but the I always said, I always thought that um, the dentist stuff. First of all, I'm always thinking, and and iconic is too in a lesser. Uh, I'm always ta- talking about film, and it's the way that it's turning out, especially with you know, and this is really. Thanks to Brad Rosenberger, um, Dennis Wilson solo stuff is getting out into TV and and movies. Um, he's hustling it. He knows how to get this stuff out there. And I am always looking at, um, first of all, just to take another, you know, Warner Brothers artist, Doobie Brothers. Okay, a film wants to use you know a song china grove would be perfect but you know what there's a beach boy song you could use too that's probably not going to be as expensive and played as much as that something that isn't part of your daily rotation i'm always thinking how do we get these songs out into the environment how do we get this to a wider audience And I had said to the guys, I said, cuddle up and make it good. Get the strings off. Cut it to the bone. I said, I I remember my my comment to Lynette a while ago was, get a piano and vocal and turn up the choir at the end for cuddle up. Um, I always thought that um, make it good needed a reinvention. And I think it's beautiful as it is. First of all, that double track vocal it, it never worked. It was it was more of a record than a song. And the record, if I may say so, you know, who the fuck am I to say? I never thought that the record cut it. I never thought that the record. It was like, if you're not going to make the song a song, you're going to make the song a record. That record has to work. And I never thought it worked as a record. And I think now by it's like that old art art class um, thing where it's like cover the whole paper in charcoal and find your drawing by using the eraser. That's how you create your 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 portrait. That's what what we've done with this by peeling it all back. You reveal this song. And I always thought of it as this really, you know, emotional ballad. You know, Dennis at the time, his wife is having babies back to back. And this is really the only time that Dennis is a family man where, you know, he's waking up with his wife, where there's a baby eating breakfast in the house. This is so I always thought of this as a really mature, um, you know, just like I'll stand, I'll stay by you. That this whole thing, you know, after having kids and childbirth and uh, and and just the, the, the massive events 
of that. Uh, that's where I always thought that came from. And I always thought it was such a mature, beautiful piece of work that was marred by whatever, you know, by kitchen sink. Um, and I think now it's been liberated the same way, um, sailplane song in the same way that California feeling it, it, there are little times where the team can further something. Um, and this is one of them. I, I was talking to, when I was talking to the, the, the Grammy, uh, com guy, um, who's a great writer and, and understood a young guy, but understands. I was saying, we were talking about how, you know, the whole thing about, you know, Carl and, and honestly for my generation, the whole Carl and the passions, pet sounds, packaging snafu meant nothing. I never got it on vinyl. I got it as a, I, before the two for, I got it on CD first. And so that, you know, taking that aside, but it was a short album. It was a weird album because it's three different bands, five different bands in one. Um, what if what I want your opinion, what would have happened if they had done an untitled like the birds where yeah. it's one record and then it's a, a selection of live tracks. Not necessarily a live album, but an album of live material. What would have happened? Well, it couldn't have uh, thudded any worse than what happened with Carl and the Passions, in my view. Um, I think almost anything different they're trying to be creative uh, carl and the passions when i've heard the story of oh that was really the, the you know the name they used to uh the band that, that back at school and wanted carl to get involved or whatever the story is uh, there was but maybe like you used the number 14 14 people when that album came out that knew what that meant yeah. uh so so thank help me here guys i don't know what this means i have no idea why the we got the side of the car here it's cool but what does this mean and then, hey, you've only given me, uh, you, you know, where's all the tracks? There should be more music on this thing. And we've already said some of these things. So all of those factors together, um, I think, made it, uh, to me, it the, the sounded muddy and it, it was like a, th a thud. I, I'm glad they didn't change their name, but maybe they need it. To me, this is the... The real, the, 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 they're just beginning again. This band of seven, the, the, I think at the Grammy uh, conversation, you said 19 different bands. This uh, this is a new band that's trying to find its way. And the, this maybe the sadness is they never really got to with Ricky and Blondie and who knows what else would have morphed into that, uh, that, that it's over. Uh, a new season, a new era starts, but... Mm -hmm. This is really a start album, not an end album, but it's also the end album. I'm not sure I'm making sense with that, but no, I understand. I, I understand. Th I think they misled people. I mean, first of all, by calling it Carl and the Passion so tough, and by having a car on the cover, mm -hmm. that that makes it seem like this is a throwback, like this is like you know 60s, yeah. 50s rock and roll, and you know here they are actually trying to like get their more progressive. Uh, 
music yeah. out there. So, and then, and then, so how you were talking about this a second ago, maybe we should just like elaborate on this a little bit. So when this album was released, uh, it was released along with pet sounds as a double album. Uh, Mike has said that, uh, you know, these albums had been out of print for a while. Uh, they were allowed to, uh, to release them. And so that's why, but I mean, you know, putting your best album against your new album, you know, the new album's going to suffer uh, by comparison. Some people said that it was actually supposed to be Smile that was supposed to be. Now, that would have been something, you know, and 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 in the concert, of course, Mike. Yes. Introducing, it also would have dwarfed it. Yes, that's true. It also would have it also would have dwarfed Carl and the Passions putting Smile yeah. next to Here She Comes. You know, you know? My view is that Carl and the, Carl and the Passions, and I mean this in a, a good way, but it, it's really, uh, I, I don't know what to call it, the, the Beach Boys meet Flame or something. It, there's something else going on here, which we know, and it's produced some great stuff, but but nobody knew that when you bought it. Nobody knew that when you went to their concert then. Even if you listened to the album, you, you just weren't, the dynamics were so unlike any other area. And you alluded to this earlier in our discussion, where the previous box sets and copyright releases, it was pretty much the same band. It's maturing, it's growing, but this is this is like something brand new. It's a one-off almost. Yeah, what do yeah. you guys think of the, uh, the those songs by by Blondie and Ricky? I mean, he come down does not sound at all like a Beach Boys song. It, it does sound more like a Crosby, Stills and Nash kind of thing to me. Hold on to your brother. Is, you mean, is, you mean, here she comes. Here she comes. Sorry, huh? sorry, sorry. Here yeah. she comes. Uh, and also, um, hold on to your brother. I mean, you can hear Carl definitely singing on that. So it sounds a little bit more integrated. But, you know, I didn't even I didn't not even recognize that Ricky was singing lead on on uh, here she comes. Uh, for years, I just thought of Blondie as the the the, the guy that was the, the vocalist. So, I mean, th that's a bit of a revelation to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I find that Flame stuff integrates well, and sometimes it doesn't sound like Beach Boys at all. I mean, I love in the in the concert how they do Wonder Bill. I think that's brilliant because you know, yeah. that wonderful the smile track that they promise smile is on the way. Uh, and then, you know, we know that Wonderful was supposed to have like a, a segment in it that, that totally changes that didn't as we've never heard that exactly. But uh, to, to, to put a flame song, maybe the best flame song, Don't Worry Bill, in the middle of that is such a great idea. It reminds me of the Beatles. I think I think that's where the integration works perfectly. And I mean, obviously, like Blondie's uh, vocal on Sail on Sailor, but uh, it, it certainly was different hearing those two guys. My whole thing is, as we go forward. Help me go backward. Take me back to the studio. Take me back to the piano bench when they were tinkering around with it. In fact, one of the songs on there, Sailor on Sailor, where they were writing the song uh, together. I had a question for you because one of the persons listed as one of the writers is Ray Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And I had, uh, uh, so I don't know how this happened on my trips to California when I was uh, traveling out there from Chicago. I somehow got that guy on the phone. I've never met him. I don't know where I got the phone number, but we mm -hmm. were talking. I've missed, forgotten most of the conversation other than for him to give me this distinct impression that he felt like these are my words, but he felt like he had a song, it was recorded, and that it was kind of pulled away from him. They gave him credit by his name there, but it, it was like there was a song that already existed 
it didn't start from scratch from Brian and others working on it. Do you know any information about that? Well, did did, it not, did not start from from that? I mean, it's great that you guys have that that Brian recording of him, like you know, coming up with that song. Like we've heard about this tape for a long time. I'm wondering why there isn't more minutes of it because I've listened to 20 minutes of that. But is is that not Brian and Van Dyke Parks? That is Brian and Van Dyke Parks. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is Ed Roach um, was there for that. Ed Roach, the day before, Ed Roach had been in the studio with Desper, with his buddies from Brooklyn, <laughs> recording a demo. Dennis was like, bring them out, bring them out, we'll record them. And Dennis and Ed had gone with Desper and recorded like a three song. I forget what the name of the, the band was. A three song demo live, little overdubs. And the next day, Ed went to either listen to it or grab the tape. Marilyn buzzes him in. He goes, he's walking up. The door is open. I guess there was some type of patio door or something. And he hears Brian and Van Dyke. And he's like, I'm not interrupting this. He sits down right by the door, lights the joint. And he says it was a few hours. He heard a few hours of them working at it. And I was like, what was it like? He goes, it was heaven. It was (laughs) God. (laughs) Well, I've got to ask him about that. But the thing is, the thing is, what when I heard it for the first time, I said, Ed, he mentions Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He mentions Brooklyn because he probably saw on the tape box Ed's friends from Brooklyn. I mean, they all these people were. I was like, Ed, did you see him that day? He goes, No. I said, Did you see? He goes, I saw him the day before when I brought my friends in. And <laughs> so Ed has turned up in Ceylon Sailor. Ed Roach is one of the inspirations, original inspirations of Ceylon Sailor. You know, how else is Brian Wilson thinking and talking about Brooklyn if not for Ed Roach? Yeah, he's just like responding to anything in the room right then. I mean, just one more reason why Ed is one of a kind, you know? For sure. But, you know, according to Ray Kennedy, a song existed. Well, yes, but and, and, course- and, and if you haven't heard it, he recorded his version of the song. So maybe he had his own lyrics. And so he recorded in 1976. He did. Well, he did. Yeah, KGB was the name of the band. Was, I think what happened, honestly, I think what, I, and this is, just, hey, this is just me. I wasn't there. What I think happened was, um, Maybe it was a situation like he contributed words to an earlier version, like almost like a um, I just got my pay, Marcella, um, yeah, ultra yeah, yeah. Stuff for school kind of, yeah. you know, yeah, evolutionary like, thing, yeah, so, yeah, where it's like you did it, or maybe we used a piece of it. I think the majority of it is Van Dyke and Riley. I don't, disagree, I don't disagree with that. I, but I did read somewhere that, you know, the, the album was rejected or they want, they wanted more of a sing, uh, single hit song. And uh, Van Dyke brought them a song is what I remember 
reading and that well you know you guys been... i'll send it to you it's it's on youtube you know i love hearing the fan mixes and i love that you know that dj ll33 dude i love all that stuff and i listen to it all and the ones like like my go-to version of do it again is some fan mix that's mine <laughs> like i do that like i think people are doing brilliant jobs but it's so funny someone took the the brian you know songwriting demo for sale on and cut it down to a listenable two minute demo and it's phenomenal and when we were like thinking about different stuff that al because al really wanted to be involved with this and he had called me and he was like, you know, I, you know, it's a pride thing. Like he's, he's excited about it. And like, I tell them it's his, this is his, Thank this you. is ours, you know, quick question to you about Mike's attitude during the con Carnegie uh, concert. Uh, he, a couple of times he, he, you know, he, uh, I, what I'm trying to say is he he is seems totally in support of the the Riley uh, theory, if you will, that yes. they're going after. Totally. I mean, he he almost you know embarrasses himself for, uh, uh, when he shuts down that one fan for saying Barbara Ann. The ironic, to, but what's ironic to me when I heard that, I immediately thought, but it wasn't too many years later when, and I'm not criticizing him. Just what's the change where he. Uh, overstated where he abandoned those songs of that era and the sun surfs up and you know simply began to promote the the surf and the car stuff not a criticism but just any I, you know i that. don't think i don't think it's as cut and dry as that first of all um in speaking with him when you know and this wasn't this project wasn't the first time that i started um, speaking to to him about this era, um, but I just want a, a, a quick shout out. Um, I don't know where it was originally printed. Maybe it was Goldmine, but we were able to get a hold of Ken Sharp's. We we're only able to use a little of it because of space. I mean, it's such a short amount of space for the essay. Um, uh, but we used Ken Sharp's literally, guys deathbed interview with jack jack riley wow and it's out there i i gotta i'll let you guys know if you want to put it on your web whatever we'd but love it please ken yes. sharp ken sharp did it and we were able to pull that's where we get the riley quotes from um but i was amazed that how um positive and um uh and respectful Mike was with Riley because you would have thought it would have been like I said to him, I was like, well, you know, how did you feel like, you know, this guy who's known your cousin for like a week is writing lyrics for him. And he was like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, but listen to those lyrics. And it's true, <laughs> you know? Yes. He, um, he really respected him. And Mike knew, you know, that's the thing. Like, this is an American um, corporation. This is the, 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 the Beach Boys are like Disney or Ford. That's good. And that's yes. what's, what's different about them than, you know, the Kinks 
or the it, it, this is an American brand institution and an institution and Mike Love whether Mike Love was was fronting the Beach Boys or running you know a a, a company uh Mike Love always would have been successful like a work ethic like I mean beyond you yeah. don't see this in rock you, you know what I'm saying yeah I've, I've met and spoken to everybody um just i mean this guy you know went to work you know when he was <laughs> 19 and he goes to work every day you know so and he's also no dummy these guys are these guys are are street smart these guys aren't educated you know they've yeah. they've learned what they've learned by being in the business and you know circling the globe 18 times so they know a, a thing or two about a thing or two and i think when he saw riley um and carl was saying yeah we need this he was able to explain to Mike, or maybe Mike was able to explain to Carl, you know, who knows? Yeah. Those two are, were partners in so many ways. Um, but he knew this is important. We need this guy. If not, we're dead. If not, we're sunflower forever. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm talking about, you know, being whatever, 151 on the Billboard 200. Yeah. And he... And so but but to get back as far as you know th you know the uh, admonishing the guy i mean that's hysterical when he's admonishing the guy for oh, yeah. we opened with the tune you know Sweet everybody was so i mean it's hysterical but you know it was gercio that was the one that was saying you gotta nail them with hit after hit after hit and doing anything but is a disservice but so i will say even in these years when they were doing hit after hit after hit, you know, there was still California saga. There was still feel flows. Um, there was still all this is that, um, you know, you would also get airplane. You would also, there was always an element, you know, it really didn't stop um, having new material until 81, 82. You know, by the time of Jamaica, that great soundboard, you guys have heard that soundboard, right? I don't think so. No. Oh, it's great. It's like the whole show is three medleys, and it's phenomenal. <laughs> Brian isn't there, but it's it's like January 82, or, or yeah, I think it is sometime in 82. It's phenomenal. Carl is just back, and they are tight. Um but, you know, there always was new music. And, but it got to a point where, um, first of all, they stopped putting out albums. Yeah. You know, yeah. like in 74, like, you know, it's not like they were ever touring Holland. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but good like point. Sail on Sailor, Sail on Sailor, California, Feel Flows, all this is that. There was a progressive part of the concert until you know 78 79 79 they're even doing you know all that that new stuff too so 
I think it's a fallacy to kind of say, oh, they became a jukebox then. I don't think that's the case. Not yet. But I think that but I think there is a difference between what you play at an auditorium or a twenty seven hundred seater or three thousand seater and what you need to do to play giant stadium. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We got love. Uh, we didn't know at the time that it was left off the album. We didn't know that it existed. Uh, when we heard it, it, you know, it's not a good vibrations, but it it's certainly, in the, again, context, uh, it could be an anthem for the Vietnam War. You know, the Beatles are talking, or John Lennon talking about give peace a chance. Uh, the Beach Boys are saying, well, we've got love. What? Any idea what happened to this song? Did they just not produce it enough to make it feel feel like it was a quality song? Well, it was the label that that nixed it. The la- it was Warner Brothers that said, get this off. Oh, because of its political... No, 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 no. no, 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 no. It... When they submitted the album to, to, to the label, it was it was rejected because it didn't have a strong single. So the, the, the original track lineup of Holland, believe it or not, started with Steamboat as the lead track, then California Saga, and then We Got Love to end side one. They said, this album's not good enough. You need a single. So they took out We Got Love, which I always thought was about apartheid, but I'm not sure about that. And then they added Sail on Sail. There's only I, nine songs on Holland, so they, they could have kept that one. And Carry Me Home, I mean, this might be like, you know, the, the hottest track on the whole box set. I mean, the one that fans have been waiting for. I mean, we've had it on bootleg for a long time, but to hear it in this kind of quality, this, this Dennis Wilson composition about literally about a, a young soldier with rigor mortis setting in, you know, dying during the Vietnam yeah. War. I mean, that would have been a powerful track to include. Maybe it's just too downbeat. You know, if you put that on side two, there's just too, too, too ballady, too downbeat all around. I don't know, but uh, thankfully we have that one in pursuit form i'll i'll tell you when we were doing the dennis documentary which do you guys have a copy of it the dennis bbc i've seen it i'll i'll send it to you in nine seconds but blondie came in for the interview Hmm. and so this is like 2009 so it was me and stebbins we were just hanging around and um we were just like blondie can we play you some shit you know, and he was like, I don't have anything. I don't have any bootlegs, nothing. <laughs> so, and then I put on Carry Me Home. And Stebbins took a picture. <laughs> and Blondie is just, and he just freezes. And he's just staring down, like frozen, like just listening to this thing. And I, you know, afterwards, he was just he was so emotional and he goes, I don't even remember singing that. He goes, I remember Dennis singing it to me. <laughs> he goes, I don't remember. Like, he didn't even remember it. He didn't remember, you yeah. know, half the stuff that he had done, you know. Wow. And he was just and it was like such a beat. You talk about a Beach Boy moment. Yeah. And just hearing Stebbins' laughter when he was just like, you know, saying, is that me? You know, it was was the coolest thing. It was the coolest thing. 
Dennis had the good so, sense to use Blondie. I, I think uh, another great one, which we talked about last time you were on, was uh, or a couple times ago, was It's a New Day. I mean, I played right? that for a friend who does not have much love for the Beach Boys, and they like they said thank you for like sending me that song. It's awesome. Well, you know, also something that I want to tell you about with um, uh, Carnegie, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yes, thank you. Uh, obviously, the 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 arrangement is taken from the Leon Russell Bangladesh version, but when you hear the chorus, that's where Chicago got feeling stronger every day. Mm. They heard that and they were like, "Whoa, let's put that to use." <laughs> listen to that chorus mm. and listen to feeling stronger every day. Just when it's at the, uh, you know, at the end of it, when they're vamping. A incredible, an incredible ensemble, incredible work all around by everybody. Everybody bringing their A game and, you know, gen genuinely caring about their bandmate. I know that some people are like, why would they close their shows with another band's? hit song but i have to say i love it i mean so these are my my two favorite bands like you know combining here and i it gets me very excited i think it's 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 just a a great version really ends the show with a lot of adrenaline uh i i think that's just another gift that this uh, box set gives us imagine if the stones ended with match point of our love <laughs> <laughs> oh i'd love to hear that and uh, then the fireworks, you know, uh, uh, guys, is there anything else? Any other highlights of this uh, box set you want to you want to bring to light before we call it a day? Well, just one for me personally, when uh, you guys know I'm a former pastor and I've got prayer websites and all that stuff. No promise. No Sunday school lesson here. But just Mike's comment for let the wind blow. Never heard this before. He says it really started out as a prayer. And that was just a cool moment for me because I have some commentary on my site that talks about uh, Beach Boy prayers, uh, songs that actually can be thought of or are meant to be prayers. And it was just cool to find out one of those that I had selected, Let the Wind Blow, actually started out that way. I love hearing so, that uh, stuff because Wild Honey, I think, is one of the best albums. Yes. And, and yes. Mike Love's voice is not necessarily all over that album, but his pen is all over those songs. You know, we don't we don't necessarily think that because if if Brian composed it and Carl sings it, we forget that Mike Love, you know, may have written the lyrics or was the inspiration behind the song. So yeah. it, was, it was great hearing him tell that story. Yeah, yeah. I might say amen to that. <laughs> Howie, anything else you want to leave us with? No, just, you know, turn everybody that's listening to this, you know, I uh, turn, make mixes for your friends. That that's what I, I that that's my parting words. You know, whatever you dig about this, whatever you dug about feel flows, sunshine tomorrow, you know, the uh, wake the world, all of this stuff make you know, just make a, uh, a a mix and send it to a friend of of just FM Beach Boys because that's the way. You know, we've you know Pet Sounds has happened. Pet Sounds reopened the door. 
But Pet Sounds came out on CD in, you know, what, 88? So that that kicked open a, uh, or 90, I think it was 90. That kicked open a, a door. Then the Good Vibrations box set, that was more. You know, then the guys, you know, got Smile completed. And now we're, we're, far away from the Tammy show image. Yes. Not that we have to knock that or or belittle that to make this stuff more important, but it is it is in the air. It is literally an element in popular culture. You don't need to resell it, repackage it or really talk about it anymore because it's 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 in the air. Um but this stuff, we need to take this stuff and take maybe the Brian went to bed. Dennis, you know, uh, was a fall down drunk. Uh, all these, you know, inconsistent with, you know, the full story issues. We have to just kind of kill it with the music. Howie, thanks so much for coming back on the show and telling us all about Sail and Sailor 1972. Always a pleasure to have you on. Looking forward, looking forward to having you back for, to talk about the next box set. Yeah, I'll be here. I'll be here before. Anytime you want me, call me. Well, I hope we do that soon. Uh, this is always not just enjoyable for a fan, but it's enlightening. And uh, I appreciate what you've shared. Thank you. Sure. And thanks to everybody listening. Come back next time and we'll do it again. <laughs>